When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. In this special collaboration episode with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, Bruce Carlson and I have a wide-ranging discussion on the intersections between American history and the French Revolution. We start off by discussing some of the noteworthy ways that the American Revolution impacted the French, and then we explore some unexpected ways that the French revolutionaries diverged from their American counterparts. After that, we shift our focus across the Atlantic, unpacking both the immediate effects of the French Revolution on the young United States, as well as how the reign of terror cast a long shadow over American politics lasting well into the 20th century. As I said, this is an extensive conversation, and I'm sure you're going to love it. Of course, this collaboration, and grey history more broadly, is only possible thanks to the amazing people supporting the show. You know the drill by now. For bonus episodes, episode extras, early access, live video call discussions, and an ad-free version of the show, please join the community and do your part to keep Grey History on the air. Sign up today through the link in the show notes or on the website and help make history that isn't black and white. A big thank you to everyone making Grey History possible, And please do share the show with at least one friend and family between now and the next episode. Finally, we have spotted a counter-revolutionary. After four years on the air, the podcast has finally received its first two-star review on Apple Podcasts, apparently from someone who doesn't like my silly jokes. Now, usually I would ignore such counter-revolutionary behaviour. But these reviews have a direct impact on the podcast's discoverability and the recommendation algorithms in podcast apps. So, my ask to you is that if you have an iPhone, a written review on Apple Podcasts would be immensely helpful as we try to protect our revolution from this reactionary fun sponge. Anyway, that's enough from me. So let's get into this amazing collaboration episode with Bruce Carlson of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. You can find My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get your podcasts.
This is Bruce Carlson of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, and I am very excited to be joined by Will Clark, who is the host of Gray History, the French Revolution, and Napoleon podcast. And he's also a member, just like me, of the Airwave Media Network. Hey, Will, thanks for uh, coming on and, and having me on yours as well. No, it's an absolute pleasure, Bruce. I'm uh, really excited to be here. I know that we've been discussing this collaboration for a little while now. And to say I- I've been, you know, f- obviously listeners don't know this, but you've slowly been kind of drip feeding and dare I say teasing me about <laughs> what you want to cover in terms of the French Revolution's both immediate but also long-term impacts on American politics. And all of this is stuff that I had absolutely no idea of. So to say that I'm uh, a keen bean would be an understatement. Well, that's great to hear. It's it's really, as we talked about it, it was a little theoretical. I knew that in my heart that and my head as well, that uh, the French Revolution and, and the American Revolution are so intertwined. But after doing um, more of the research, and my show is basically, you know, history and the politics of today, and I'm always learning as I do it. Uh, and um, it it just became so apparent that it's not just intertwined. The America we have is many ways defined by it and the events in France. And, uh, so, and the changing events in France really changed the character of uh, the early American Republic and what it, what it became. And so it's just been fascinating. And we have some things to talk about there. Why don't you talk, though, a bit about, you know, your podcast and its purpose and how you're kind of set up? Yeah, sure. So Grey History, the French Revolution, the, the premise behind the show is that history isn't black and white. There's ambiguity, there's nuance. And so as we're talking about history, we should be getting into the grey because it's in that grey that history has its beauty, its intrigue, and, you know, most importantly for our troubled 21st century, it's in the grey that history has its lessons. And so the reason why we're deep diving into the French Revolution, as you just alluded to, Bruce, is that the French Revolution permeates pretty much every aspect of the modern democratic world. It defines so much of the world that we live in. And in fact, it defines so much of, you know, not only the democratic world, but just the the world in the 21st century as well. I mean, the ideological underpinnings of, you know, communist and fascist regimes also can tie their origins back to the French Revolution to an extent. So I think it's an absolutely fascinating topic. The narrative of the French Revolution is absolutely fascinating. You'd say someone was making it up if it wasn't for the fact that it occurred. And so, yeah, that's that's what we're up to over at Grey History. And for the benefit of my audience, do you want to maybe just explain what you're doing over at My History Can Beat Up Your Politics? Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to do that. It's basically, how does history impact and resemble the politics of today? How did we get where we are? But also, what happened in the past that's similar? That's probably half of it that I do. It, what happened in the past that's similar? to what we're doing now. So I do, you know, it's always been a little bit of the historian's um, no-no to get into current politics. And I don't do that in terms of telling people who to vote for or anything like that, um, or who's great and who's not in politics. But I do talk about today's politics going on in the context of, hey, this happened before, that happened before. Do tend to have an American focus, but as we're going to discuss today, 
you can't even talk about American history without sometimes involving other countries, and France is one of them all throughout our history. Absolutely. What a, you know, I think it would be good for listeners to start with. They know about the French Revolution, but maybe not as much as what causes the French Revolution. And a common thing we learn about in American history, schools, you know, in our classes in school, is the that the French Revolution was partially caused by the impact of the debt from the American Revolutionary War that the king incurred in helping us in America. Maybe you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose there's a variety of causes for the French Revolution. And I mean, historians bitterly disagree amongst themselves as to what should and should not be considered a cause and the extent to which a particular factor was a major or a minor contributor to the outbreak of the revolution in 1789. There are some factors that we would be quite familiar with in the 21st century. Things like high bread prices, uh, high prices for basic goods and commodities, inflation. These are all quite topical conversations here, you know, here right now. There are also some factors that we would be familiar with, but we wouldn't necessarily label them the same as we would. So, for example, the role of Enlightenment ideas. I mean, we would think of these ideas probably by by different different names, but fundamentally they're, they're the same, that we are familiar with them. But as you alluded to, perhaps most importantly, the reason why we get the French Revolution when we do is because of government debt. I mean, the biggest cause of the French Revolution was a bankruptcy crisis. It was the government's inability to pay its debts. And as you said, uh, you know, the debt that we generally point to is what was incurred by the French government for its participation in the American Revolutionary War. I mean, the French spent an absolute fortune helping the cause for American independence. And it's not the only debt. You know, the the Crown's finances before the war were already precarious. I mean, there were members of the French cabinet that essentially warned that if the French got involved, it would bankrupt the nation. Mm. Uh, So it's not like it was the only debt that the French government had. But at its core, you know, without that debt, you don't get the French Revolution. Reform to what we call the old regime uh, was inevitable and it was necessary. But fundamentally, all of this stems from a bankruptcy crisis, the need for taxation and fiscal reforms to avoid bankruptcy, and the aristocracy saying no. And what you get is an aristocratic revolt morphing into a general revolt and finally morphing into a revolution. I suppose two two facts that would maybe make this a bit more tangible to listeners. The French spent double of 1786's ordinary revenue for the year in terms of its commitment. So it was an absolutely astronomical cost in terms of what they spent. And by the time of the revolution, 50% of the government's expenditure was going towards servicing debt which is an astronomical amount. If you think about 50% of a government's expenditure just going towards uh, interest and debt repayments. So that is why, as you said, as, as taught in schools around the world, that's why we often link the American Revolutionary War uh, to being a key catalyst for the French Revolution. I mean, no doubt that uh, France was essential to the Americans securing um, revolution. I I will 
always make the case that, um, you know, some revolution was going to happen, particularly New England, New England defending its own towns and uh, kicking the British out of and creating some type of at least autonomous government in perhaps New England uh, might have been accomplished locally. But everything else, the real continental fight, the the ability to have uh, any kind of uh, naval conclusion to the war really required France. But at first you're seeing even in the initial Concord battle, what was the ammunition? What were, what were gunpowder were they using? Where it was from? Well, they had secured it from purchases from France and a couple other nations, of course. And the, the, our great needs, you know, really, um, yeah, really contributed to that. To follow up on what you were just saying around the supplies that the French were sending. I mean, even before the French Navy and the French Army got involved, you know, Pretty much all the gunpowder used by the Americans in the Saratoga campaign is French gunpowder. At the time that the conflict broke out, there's maybe just one gunpowder mill operational in the 13 colonies. You know, you have a tremendous amount of reliance on muskets, arms. You know, the French were even sending uniforms and tents. Like everything was being thrown at this conflict before the formal alliance. And then you've got a formal alliance with a French. Not only the French Navy and the French Army are in, you know, in America, in the Caribbean, and in fact, in continental Europe. I mean, the longest siege of the Revolutionary War is in Gibraltar in southern Spain. It's, you know, people forget just how global this conflict was at times. And so that's why this conflict was just so expensive for the French. I mean, they, they didn't have the resources, really. To, and they weren't, they weren't in the financial position to undertake the conflict. And that's why it, it, it came back to bite them just a few years later. It was just so tempting, though. Here's the American <laughs> colonies, their own, uh, the own English colonies that they had just fought in what we call the uh, French and Indian War. You know, and, and here they are, um, all those Bostonians we fought against are now, and Virginians are now uh, revolting against their king. How can we not take this opportunity? But they really were still pretty badly beat up from the last war and in a bad, uh, bad position. Now, the rough years we're talking about with the French Revolution. I started 1789. Is that the right place? Yeah, I would say 1789. That's the date that we generally, you know, would consider the start of the revolution. I mean. To be frank, there are historians that argue that actually you can really start to tie events from 1787 and 1788. It's definitely, I suppose, the pre-revolutionary years, as, as you would expect with a lot of revolutions. I mean, you can't talk about, for example, the Russian Revolution in 1917 without talking about, you know, the lead up in World War One, for example, or the events of, of the early 20th century. So, yeah, I think 1789 is fair game. I mean, obviously, the French still celebrate as their national holiday today, the fall of the Bastille on the 14th of July, 1789. So yeah, the, the summer of 1789 is is as good a start as any. If anything, probably the more controversial bit is when do we end the French Revolution? You know, for those people that are, are unfamiliar, uh, Ridley Scott has just produced a great film that was incredibly controversial for everyone to go and see on Napoleon. But essentially, the revolutionary era rolls into the Napoleonic era. And so whether you say the revolution ends uh, at the end of the terror in 1794, whether it's Napoleon's coup in 1799, whether it's the downfall of Napoleon in 1815, you know, there's, there's, those are three of many dates that historians bitterly disagree over just when the French Revolution ended. But you're talking about 
the last 10 years of the 1700s at a minimum, really. I think so. And definitely for the purposes of our discussion, for instance, when later we get into uh, impacts on America, um, you you must discuss those 10 years because it doesn't, the fact that there was a revolution in 1787 or 1789, wherever it started, um, will will impact the government long into the past the reign of terror and into the uh, directory period. The directory probably caused America the most trouble over here. <laughs> but in any case, well, that's a teaser of later. How much really is the whole bread thing that we hear about, the lack of bread, how much is that really a contributor to the French Revolution? Yeah. So, I mean, there's no doubt about it. It is a significant contributing factor to the outbreak of the revolution in mid-1789. I mean, in the years leading up to the French Revolution, there had been several years of bad harvests. And by July 1789, the situation was was pretty dire. In the, in the four months preceding the fall of the Bastille, there were more than 300 accounts of violence and disorders that were recorded as a direct result of the scarcity of food. So absolutely, the lack of food was making an impact. And naturally, you know, we can understand that the, this desperation, this starvation, also this fear of starvation uh, made people open to change. And it also made people hostile towards the royal authorities that were viewed as a combination of corrupt and incompetent. I suppose there's two things worth noting. Firstly, many of the major popular disturbances of the revolution were accompanied by high food prices and broader a scarcity of not only foodstuffs, but also basic commodities such as soap and firewood and the like. Uh, you know, cost of living issues, to use a modern term, were a big factor in shaping the revolution and influencing how it evolved over time. When the monarchy was overthrown in 1792, when leading revolutionary factions were overthrown, when big demonstrations and uprisings occurred, they were almost always accompanied by times when food and basic necessities were prohibitively expensive and near unobtainable for the average citizen. And as a result, issues like price controls, forced sale of goods, private property rights, measures against hoarders and speculators, these all become key debates during the revolution as it radicalizes and as different factions vie for control. And I suppose that that leads me to a quick second point, which Mm -hmm. is that it's important that the issue of bread and food scarcity and hunger, it's important as a contributing factor to the outbreak of revolution. But what I think is actually overlooked is the role of food scarcity and hunger, not in starting the revolution, but in fact, in shaping the revolution over time. These issues define the revolution's evolution. They are critical to its radicalization. And so to me, the real interesting story is not so much the situation in mid 1789, but rather how food scarcity shapes the events from 1789 onwards. I mean, the issue of food will continue to bedevil and undermine future revolutionary governments, be they constitutional monarchists or even Republican governments. And these, you know, all these interrelated issues of food insecurity, economic hardship, inflation, they become not only incredibly important but they become powerful weapons in the factional feuds of the revolution. And they're used with tremendous effect to discredit and dislodge individuals, factions, and even entire institutions. So to answer your question, yes, the price of basic goods, the scarcity of food 
This has a meaningful impact on the outbreak of the revolution, but I would argue that it perhaps has a more meaningful impact and certainly a more interesting impact on the revolution's evolution over time and how the revolution radicalizes as we get into the years after the fall of the Bastille. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. That's fascinating. Of course, we can relate to inflation, although that's relatively novel, particularly in America. I would talk about history on my podcast and about times like the 1970s in America when there was very high inflation, higher than we've had right now, double digit in some cases, not not unusual at all in, say, 79 or 80 in America to have, you know, inflation be double digits and to have interest rates be similar amounts, it, just tremendously costly for everything. And while Americans didn't up, um, you know, didn't start a new American revolution or anything. Inflation just generates the most radical thoughts in people because we really, what we did do is overthrow our president. So there was a lot of one term occurring during that inflation period. Um, and, uh, and also just a lot of uh, more of a change in how people viewed the presidency. So it's fascinating to see that this is the, uh, the also the case in France and and uh, there was a little nugget that I saw about uh, Governor Morris, who is one of the um, Americans in France at that at, at a time, and he was proposing various suggestions to the king, like the various speeches that could be made, words that could be said to perhaps solve the situation and. One of the proposals, he was a very rich man. Governor Morris, his his estate was a lot of the land that is now Bronx, New York, um, was the, the Morrisania, the uh, Governor Morris's estate and mansion. That's a very rich man. And 
America was bread rich and farming rich. We weren't rich in hard currency all the time. And that would that caused problems in our own country. But there was this proposal that make say these right words and then we'll also set up the ships and they'll come through London and come to Paris at just the right time with the bread to save you. But first of all, the king didn't take his proposal, uh, just, you know, wrote some nice words back and uh, the bread plan never happened. I'm not sure that a, an American shipments could ever have solved the problem in any case. No, I'm, I'm not sure either. I mean, there's a whole host of factors. I think the, the problem for the royal government is, well, you're two factors. One, in relation to the scarcity of food, you've got just simple things like bad harvests. That was a, a huge contributing factor, which is ov- obviously outside of human control. Another thing to point out is that the diversification of food at the time, even compared to other European countries, was pretty low. So, for example, France was pretty slow at picking up the potato as part of their diet, even in compared to, like, say, Prussia. Now, obviously, that you can go too far the other way in terms of, you know, you get events like the Irish famine and the like, but the French diversification of crop was not as sophisticated as other nations on the continent. And then the other thing to point out is by the time you get to the start of the Revolutionary War in 1792, and just to be clear, the Revolutionary War is almost like, you know, this, it's the start essentially of the Napoleonic Wars. It's essentially 25 years of conflict. By the time you take out so much manpower to actually fight that conflict, by the time that you're taking out carts and horses for the army, what you're actually doing is robbing the agricultural sector of the instruments and manpower that they need to have successful harvests. And so you not only have these natural factors and these kind of broader economic factors, but you also have you know responses to the military conflict, which means that as the revolution goes on, this issue of food insecurity, you know, continues to get worse, particularly once you start adding on things like inflation and, and you know, more or less war with the entire continent. Yeah, that's, that's got to have an impact on the economy. Let's talk about impacts in another way. It's another thing that we learn in American history here in the States is that the American Revolution, coming so soon before the French Revolution, What's the impact of the American Revolution on the on the French one? Yeah, so like all things French Revolution, nothing is agreed amongst historians. But what is interesting, particularly about America acting as a role model for French reformers and eventually the early revolutionaries, is that you do get some agreement amongst historians from a real wide variety of the ideological spectrum. So, for example, if I take a historian like Peter Kropotkin, who's an anarcho-communist historian, he aligns quite closely with what we would call the classical interpretation of the French Revolution, which mm-hmm. is really a way of saying one that it's the Marxist interpretation. It's really one that emphasizes the centrality of class conflict in understanding the revolution. He argues that the a revolution in America had awakened minds and inspired the revolutionaries with a breath of liberty and Republican democracy. So that's quite a strong take. And then on the other end of the ideological spectrum, you've got, say, revisionist historians like Robert R. Palmer, who's debatably the most esteemed American historian on the French Revolution. He has pretty similar sentiments, um, and I will actually quote from him directly. He says, whether fantastically idolized or seen in a factual way, whether as a mirage or as reality, America made Europe seem unsatisfactory to many people of the middle and lower classes, and to those of the upper classes who wished them well. 
it made a good many Europeans feel sorry for themselves and induced a kind of spiritual flight from the old regime. So you've got historians from across the ideological spectrum that really push home this message of America acting as a role model for the French. And again, you know, you've got someone like historian Richard McKee, who says that the American Revolution produced for the French an educational program of gigantic proportions, and French intellectuals could foresee in America the nirvana of the future golden age and a model for a new France. And to me, that last little bit, a model for a new France is interesting because this is where I have a big but. Because (laughs) when you actually go looking for tangible ways that the Americans inspired the French revolutionaries, these views, these attitudes, they become a little harder to argue, at least for me. And the supportive evidence needs to be qualified a little bit. In the lead up to the French Revolution, I think it's absolutely fair to say that the ideas that the American revolutionaries were promoting impacted the thinking of their French counterparts, particularly ideas such as no taxation without representation. I mean, after all, the French Revolution at its core started with a bankruptcy crisis. It started with issues around taxation. And so it's no real surprise that these sorts of ideas from America filtered into the French public debate. And so initially, yes, the impact of America and its part, I suppose, as a role model for the practical implementation of Enlightenment ideas, yes, that that can be seen clearly. However, once the French actually start to craft their Declaration of Rights, and perhaps Mm. more importantly, once they're actually building their new constitution, things really diverged from the American approach. I mean, in a whole host of ways, the French revolutionaries outright rejected the ideas that underpinned the brand new US constitution. I mean, as you said, you had the Confederation period after the American Revolutionary War. George Washington is sworn into office only a few weeks, uh, just a couple of months before the storming of the Bastille. And so, you know, the US constitution uh, is brand new, and yet the revolutionaries really reject a whole host of the underlying principles that the Americans adopted. There's a lot of deviations, but I think I'll just just point out some of the real interesting ones, particularly sure. for those people that, that are quite interested in the American constitution and how it works. Um, one of the things that the French really did not embrace was the separation of powers, which is obviously like a key fundamental guiding principle to the American constitution. The king had far less powers than the US president, and unlike the US Supreme Court, the judiciary was well and truly subordinated to the French legislature. And why was this the case? Well, many French revolutionaries, they ideologically disagreed with the whole idea of the separation of powers. They argued that sovereignty laid with the people and that just laws were a reflection of the general will of the people. And taking that one step further, they argued that there was only one general will. And so this could only be represented by one institution. And that institution was not the executive branch in the form of the king and his ministers, nor was it an independent judicial branch. Instead, it was the legislative branch. And as the legislative branch represented the sovereign people and the sovereign will of the people, uh, it had to be the supreme constitutional power. And therefore, the executive and the judicial branches were subordinated to the legislative branch. So in short, this was a complete rejection of the balancing of powers and the separation of powers, which defined so much of the US constitution. 
And, and for similar reasons, the French absolutely rejected the American approach of establishing a, a bicameral system, a system of two chambers, the House mm-hmm. and the Senate. And in fact, all but one US state at the time had such a system. I believe it was only Pennsylvania that had one chamber at the time. And for that matter, so too did the United Kingdom. I mean, the UK still has the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The, the French adopted a unicameral system, so one single very powerful legislative assembly. And again, it was this idea that there was only one general will of the people, and this was the supreme sovereign power, and the will could not be divided into separate parts or into separate houses. And therefore, the establishment of a bicameral system, you know, the creation of a house and a senate, if you like, would distort the true representation of the people's will. These are just two ways that the French mm-hmm. fundamentally differed from the Americans. I've got an interesting thought experiment, though, for you. Okay. One final one. One of the other ways, and this, there's so many that the French differed, but the French essentially banned their founding father equivalents, the revolutionaries of the National Constituent Assembly, from sitting in the next assembly or from joining the king's cabinet. Now, the former of this was called the self-denying ordinance, and essentially it was denying the creators of the constitution from immediately participating in the new constitutional system. It was designed to prevent the monopolization of power, and there was also this idea, well, surely in a country of 25-odd million people, we can find some new statesmen to lead the next stage of the revolution. Now, personally, I think this was, obviously this was very well-meaning, but I also think it was quite naive and foolish. Uh, It meant that anyone with the experience of statecraft was not able to help bed down the new constitution in practice. But what I think is interesting to think about is imagine for a moment if this had occurred in American history. I mean, imagine if the Americans had said, right, if you're a founding father, if you participated in the drafting and the creation and the ratification of the constitution, you cannot be president. You cannot be a member of Congress and you cannot be a cabinet secretary for the next few years while the constitution was being implemented. I mean, American history would look completely different. I mean, so many of your early presidents, so many Mm. of your secretaries, so many of your early members of Congress are founding fathers involved in the creation of the constitution. I mean, there would not have been a presidency. They would not have had the comfort and the confidence to have a presidential office with that much power without the full knowledge, everyone in the room in the Constitutional Convention knew that Washington was going to be the first president. Everyone knew it. Yeah, so it's fascinating, like, to go, you know, I appreciate I've digressed, my audience knows that I'm famous for them, but to go to the heart of your question about how much America acted as a role model for the French, yes, it certainly did initially, and there's certainly historians that think it, it was this key role model. But once it actually came to creating a constitution and and also just the, the, the way that they did their declaration of the rights of man and citizens, the French really diverged from the American approach. And so there's real limitations on how much you can say that that there was an influence there. Yes, there was some influence for sure, but it, the French were not copying and pasting someone else's homework. That's for sure. <laughs> no, I think um, it 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 really shows you how different the two systems are. It is necessary on the American side to understand it a bit, to know that it's not like there was a big referendum taken and everyone said by a vote of 67% of the people, we'll have a president and a Senate and two bodies and all of that. You had in America always 
those type of feelings that you see in the revolution in France, including things like the term limits, and maybe not that specific uh, proposal, but you see that the, the need for rotation and you have radicals, particularly in the uh, Philadelphia city government who ended up taking over the politics in Pennsylvania. You mentioned that was where there was a unicameral government and a, and a, and a president of three people instead of one, you know, so they really had a radical government for a while in uh, Pennsylvania. There, there are forces that would have liked to seen, uh, see one body. A person to talk about there is, is Thomas Paine. So Thomas Paine's proposal would have been very similar. Like one Congress runs everything, just like you, you said, the French revolutionaries were thinking that there's only one will of the people and that many people in a body can't be wrong. Well, we now know that it's easy for small groups to dominate a big body like that. Today, even our Congress, I, I would argue the Speaker has a lot of power and parties have a lot of power and things. So so it wasn't very well thought out, but he, uh, so he's a voice for that kind of thing. But you're right in that in the actual history of America and what actually occurs in the government, the more conservative forces uh, won out. And we're also a collection of states rather than one country revolting. So it actually, it was a government that was sort of held skeptically, this federal government, by those states and by the actors in the states. Many of the founding fathers' constitutional convention went back to states because that's where the action was. James Madison, who's even became one of our presidents, he served a term as Virginia governor, because states were where the action were. So as a really more conservative system. And on the other hand, you know, you have different scholarship, just like you have in the in France, that there are some like Gordon Wood, who would argue that while it is conservative on the surface, it was pretty radical, because we had done so much just by coming to the New World. And we broke this chain of class and master and servant relationships, not completely, but broke a lot of that. And like the Scottish, Scots-Irish would say when they came over, we didn't bring our lards with us. So um, what the revolution did is codify it. And by codifying that, it was pretty radical, you know, just in terms of uh, a new government on the new world and codifying that no... We can't have a future where a British king who's more enterprising or selfish, say, uh, just say, you know what, Massachusetts is going to be, I'm going to put my buddy in charge of that. And uh, so codifying that was important as it was radical in its own way. But the actual government, like you say, no, it's a very conservative. We had had enough. One of the, one of the issues is the difference is that the revolution is 76. As I say, we don't kick the British out of New York till 83 even after Yorktown. And then you have the Confederation for a while. We saw a lot of things during that time. It gave us a long period to where we saw some of the, here's the bad things that can happen. Here's what states can do that isn't good. So we got to regulate them a bit. So we're going to need a federal government, mostly to keep them in check. So it's all very conservative. Obviously, a lot of our founding fathers, it, it need not be said, they're plantation owners, they're rich men, not all of them. Definitely not all of them, but you know Thomas Paine is one I would put there, even though he's originally a Brit. I would I would put him as one of our founding fathers, and he wasn't a rich man by any means. So, you, but it's essentially a conservative government, and so you know I think there was some expectation though 
They Washington sends Lafayette, the great hero of our revolution, from France, our kind of shared hero. He sends him a copy of the new constitution, I think, expecting that, you know, this might be useful in France, and it's really not. And there's some disappointment here. Yeah, I, I think, as you said, I mean, you touched on it as well. Like, you know, France doesn't even have states. And, you know, they had a discussion about mm. whether they would have states because they had ancient provinces that had existed for centuries. And there's a very conscious decision. No, there is one France. It is one united country. And so they don't create a federation of states. And actually, um, where we are in the narrative in great history at the moment, we're discussing the civil wars in 1793 and federalism, the kind of, you know, if someone accused you of promoting the United States model of, of looking to create, to divide France into separate republics as they saw it, that was like the supreme heresy of the French Revolution was to be called a federalist, which means something very different in the French Revolution because they've got a very different starting point. But yeah, as you said, the Americans had ex had some experience because of the time from the Declaration of Independence through to, you know, Confederation period and the like. And also the Americans were borrowing heavily on the experience of the English and English history and English tradition as well, where the French were outright rejecting all of these things to the horror of Edmund Burke. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, on the American side, so what you essentially have, maybe it's maybe it's a good opportunity just to talk about it, is that while the revolution is going on in France, Americans are watching every moment of it. At first, there is joy. And it really cuts across, whether people are Federalist or Republican, or are two early parties here, really cuts across the types of politics here. If figures like Washington so excited that our revolution could possibly be an influence to such an important country in the world. Adams, uh, maybe a little disappointed that they didn't use his book as a model. That's John Adams. But he, of course, excited that there was this um, revolution going on. Jefferson, of course, initially is in France during the early events and very excited. To, he goes to the Bastille a few um, moments after it's... Um, it's taken, and he's very excited that this revolution is happening. Um, he'll he'll be very enthusiastic for for all of this in the beginning, until they start seeing some of the things we talk about. That it's not going to be a revolution with the proper safeguards, and that the more moderate or even conservative factions aren't um, aren't the ones always winning out. And reports are constantly coming back to America. And of course, another thing that makes it important is, is that uh, we still have a treaty in effect with the nation of France. And that treaty goes back to 1778. And so it's not something that we can completely ignore. There are some American policymakers that would like to sort of like say, well, that was then, this is a new government, but it's it's a factor. And not only that, there's tremendous commerce. We, of course, our number one trading partner is going to be Great Britain. There's no way, even after a revolution and fighting, there's no way around that. But there is, particularly in the capital of Philadelphia, a lot of French settle there. It's a very popular place. There are French ships from France arriving all the time throughout American ports. This is a 
you know, and and we're getting those news because, you know, even though it's a long, it's a big ocean, um, the frequency of ships is something not to forget about, that the news is arriving from a relay of ships. It may not be, you know, we may find out events a few months later, but we're finding events out. And as the nature of the French Revolution changes, the opinions of people uh, in America, Washington certainly, but even Jefferson, even Madison, people that are enthusiastic about France and the possibility of liberty for people, um, start to raise a few eyebrows too at, at some of the events. Thomas Paine, who we referred to earlier, actually gets the most involved of any because he goes over to France on a regular basis, so regular that he's helping to write governing documents and giving his opinion, even though he doesn't speak French. He doesn't speak any. And he eventually gets elected to the assembly in France. Um, and um, he's horrified, though, even as an American radical, when um, events get too severe, particularly the, the, the killing of the king, which he argues against in the assembly. And because he's too conservative, which for Americans looking at Paine, like somebody like John Adams and Washington thinking about Thomas Paine being a conservative in the eyes of some of the the the, the Jacobins in France, it, they had to like be besides themselves because they considered Paine a radical. But here he is on the, the assembly floor arguing against the, not just the killing of the king, but a lot of the steps that the assembly would take that he thought were ill-guided and um, eventually he'll be imprisoned for that in France and narrowly avoids the guillotine. So um, so we contributed directly in the form of our, um, our uh, very important inspirational figure. You know, it's not like Thomas Paine was ever president, but uh, he couldn't, we, uh, well, no, that's a complicated issue whether he could be or not. Uh, he... He wasn't. There's was no way he'd get elected. Too many people hated him, as, as many as they loved him. But he was our inspiration. He was the guy that wrote the document that inspired so many people to revolution. And there he is in France. And he's a little bit more conservative or moderate, probably more associated with the Girondin faction uh, in France and uh, nearly executed for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Thomas Paine's an interesting one. You know, as you said, this is the author of Common Sense, the most, you know, so I would say the most celebrated pamphlet, if you like, of the American Revolution. He he also writes what's known as the Rights of Man, which is quite a radical document, and it's a really a rejection of Edmund Burke's criticisms of the French Revolution. And as you say, he's he's elected to what we call the National Convention, and that that was essentially a constitutional convention. Its name partly is was inspired by the American Constitutional Convention, and its job was to create a new Republican constitution once the French had toppled the constitutional monarchy. And as you say, he essentially ended up siding with the the faction of the the convention that was more conservative. It, this is all very relative because if your opinion, if you you know, if you were a royalist in France, then the whole convention is radical. So all of this is all quite relative in nature. But as you say, you know, for the French Revolution, Paine was on the more conservative side of things, uh, and uh, yeah, he is imprisoned. And he, he, to be frank, he's very lucky that he survived. I mean, I think if you want the 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 quick view of what American opinion was, it's really right there. That constitutional convention, that group. I'm gonna I'm gonna say without knowing if it's a hundred percent 
accurate, but the more the Jarendine. Um, the the more moderate faction. I don't believe Americans, for instance, were happy with the nation of France remaining a kingdom. We were we were a democracy and a republic, and we wanted more republics. The king of France could have caused us problems. I could talk in a bit about some of the problems caused by France later, but that could have happened with a king in France and certainly a Catholic king in, in America being a very Protestant country. There were some scary elements about that remaining. So I think a lot of Americans of all political parties were very happy to see the revolution happen, but hoped that the more moderate elements would take over. And then to present the really shortcutted view, it's like, and this doesn't change. I, I think I've just today saw a couple references in today's of politics, but really in American politics, the the heroes are those people, those moderates, Lafayette, and anyone who tried to form a constitution, tried to get things working, even if it was to be a constitutional monarchy in France. Those were American heroes, particularly among people like Washington or Adams or figures, Hamilton, figures in our government here. And the the not-so-good part is um, Robespierre and the Jacobins. And you see here, although there might be some tolerance of it by some forces in America, that is the breaking point when it goes to more your reign of terror. In American history then and continuing, there is absolute horror over those events and a continued separation of the kind of good French Revolution from the bad French Revolution <laughs> in America. Well, I, and that actually never stops. I think in part, though, that's just the nature of the French Revolution. Realistically, mm -hmm. it's a series of revolutions. With you, mm -hmm. We call it the French Revolution, but it's actually a series of, of revolutions. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when Lafayette is, you know, He's not in charge by any means, but when he's at his most prominent in the constitutional monarchy phase, he's very a very visible face of the new regime and the new order, particularly in 1790 and, and 1791 to an extent, at least the first half before he's he's in part discredited by his his role in a in a shooting or what what we call the Champ de Mars massacre. You know, th there are essentially two different. The, you know, two different revolutions or multiple revolutions. I think Lafayette's a very interesting character because he starts off this popular hero, as you say, he's the hero of two worlds. Then he becomes a traitor in the eyes of the Jacobin Republic. I mean, he does, you know, to go over to the Austrian side. The Austrians uh, also view him as a traitor to the king. So they throw him in a dungeon for several years and it, it does, you know, irreversible damage to his health. And by the time of his death, though, and France has gone through the Napoleonic era and now the restored urban monarchy, he's back to being a national hero. And so his kind of story arc, if you like, is quite interesting because the nation of France really, the ground's kind of shifting underneath him. And so, you know, he does, I suppose, die a hero, you know, but he certainly goes through phases where both Republicans and Royalists, whether you're kind of on the left or the right, absolutely loathe him. So yes, it's it's interesting that his memory is so favorable uh, in, in America, and I would say it's still favorable in France as well, but it certainly wasn't always the case. Well, absolutely, because he was, uh, well, first of all, 
America didn't have a lot in the way of wealth. We had we had a lot in the way of food, as I as I talked about in some areas of the country. But what we had was a lot of land and a lot of towns. And if you measure it by towns, there's probably two people. Uh, one is orange, so there's a lot of oranges, and that's William. So that's the great Protestant hero from the Glorious Revolution, 1788. But the second, probably most common town outside of Washington or American figures would be Lafayette or Fayette. So many people, if their town is Fayette, they might not know that that's essentially Lafayette. So we have nothing but Lafayette townships, Lafayette counties, Fayette counties, Fayette townships um, all over the United States that continued recognition. He does a tour of America in the 1820s. It's He's heralded. And of course, the first thing that happens in World War One is the soldiers in America go, we're here, Lafayette, we are here. Uh, something like that it, it it remains in the in the in the in the memory of of the bond between uh, um I'm almost getting choked up talking about Lafayette <laughs> knowing all the history because he was also very good and we didn't have a lot of good generals even on the American side and and certainly the foreigners that came to help the revolution there were a few von Steuben and and him really stand out as figures that helped us. So there's so there's certainly a connection. You know, so of course that's so important. But that's where our hopes were. And it seems like when they started to hear about I'm telling you the the name if if Lafayette is the great name in America, Robespierre is the boogeyman. And I know he's the boogeyman everywhere, but particularly in America as a good way of delineating like our good France and bad France and also for Americans who wanted to avoid some of the relationship with France after it got more radical, you know, that was their justification for doing it. But that almost never stopped. We still, you still see references to Robespierre today. I just saw, I saw one in um, a reference to pronouns, the the politics over pronouns and gender here in, in, in America. And it was a reference to uh, Robespierre from Peggy Noonan, who was Reagan's speechwriter, just in 2020 talking about Robes, Robespierre wanted to change pronouns too. So it's it's he's constantly a boogeyman. That's never changed. I have plenty of examples we get into later or what have you, but that's really where you draw that line. Um, I, I think what's interesting about Robespierre in particular is that, uh, yes, he is a boogeyman in, I would say, let's call it the mainstream interpretation of the French Revolution and particularly those interpretate that you're kind of uh, a foreign perspective of the revolution and certainly a British perspective of the revolution. But in France itself and indeed within academic circles, the reputation and role of Robespierre is one that is fiercely contested and very hotly debated. And how much Robespierre is himself guilty of the excesses and crimes of the terror versus, say, a scapegoat of those that are actually committing the excesses and crimes of the terror, or perhaps somewhere in between, you know, how much is it his decision versus the decision of a broader committee? These are all things that actually academics are spilling and are continuing to spill a lot of ink over. And so what is fascinating, particularly around Robespierre as an individual, is as you say, he is you know, the great boogeyman of the revolution. He is, you know, evil personified in some accounts. But 
there is definitely a large school of historical thought that would really push back against that. And that's one of the things that we're starting to explore where we are in in grey history as we essentially start, we're kind of starting the terror now. And so how much Robespierre is a driving factor and how much he can be assigned responsibility is something that we, we're going to be exploring. But to go back maybe to Lafayette and sure. American reception of the French Revolution, I mean, obviously Lafayette finds himself in, in Austrian and Prussian dungeons after the revolution turns into a republic. During the reign of terror, Lafayette's wife and her family are detained by the revolutionary authorities and American officials, while officially they don't really get involved, unofficially they are very much informing the French government that if the wife of the Marquis de Lafayette finds herself guillotined, the Americans very well may abandon neutrality. I suppose if we kind of step back and look at the terror more Mm -hmm. broadly, Mm -hmm. what are the senior American statesmen, you know, making of all of this? And then how is that actually turning into practical policy changes or approaches? I suppose, what, what are the impacts of the terror on the juvenile American Republic? Grey History needs your help to stay on the air. For bonus episodes, episode extras, early access, and an ad-free version of the show, support the podcast today by joining the Grey History community. You can also join the great conversations happening on the community Discord and the new video call discussions that we've started as well. So help be the change you want to see, help produce history that isn't black and white, and help ensure that one of your favourite independent podcasts can keep bringing you the show that you've come to love. Support Grey History today. Just follow the link in the show notes or on the website. I think that there's a certain group of Americans, I think a large swath of Americans in government, again, I think kind of the the the, the shortcut of it is that the conservatives won, or at least the moderates won, in the construction of American government. So I do think there's a horror. I think they see it as an aberration, what's going on over there, particularly during the terror. And so there is, I don't want to say that it can never happen here, but there's some of that thinking. There, It's not going to lead to immediate panic, like this is going to happen in the streets of, of Philadelphia. Although certainly some riots do occur all through the early republic. It's it's not unusual to have street demonstrations. And we already had our lessons of sort of mob problems in the past, and that would be the Shays Rebellion. And kind of like the Robespierre example we're, we're saying is that sometimes that is a little exaggerated. Even Washington sort of receives reports thinking that some of them are like, okay, you're trying to make this an example to bolster the federal government. You want me to go be the guy to lead the convention. You're trying to argue that. Well, I'm getting some information that wasn't as bad as what you say. So we have some mob events. There are a group of Washington soldiers, uh, he's not part of it, that surround the early capital and demand payment um, before the revolution is over. And Washington does put a stop to that. It peters out. But there, So there's little scary things, but I, I don't think there's the feeling that, that, that it'll come across the Atlantic or something like that. It's just a constant cautionary tale throughout American history that, and, and when we see changes over time, that this is the this is the bad. The good is our moderate revolution with rights. You know, 
to move forward a bit on the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution. So in 1989, you know, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor is going to make a speech. And I just saw this speech and I thought it was so typical of how we view the French Revolution, because while she salutes that France, you know, introduced rights and things like that we like in America, it was so much better that in the same year we passed the Judiciary Act, that we created a more stable dem- but democratic republic. Um, whereas, and probably she cites Robespierre like three times in the, in the, in the speech, the, the French government was more focused on, say, the rights of man. We were more focused on liberties, and in a lot of cases it was preserving liberties that were there. There's not a heck of a lot in the Constitution that is a new radical system of, uh, or rights. These are rights that most people felt they had in, first as Brits and then in the states. Um, so the, the Bill of Rights in the Constitution we have today is very similar to the Virginia Bill of Rights that any Virginian would have expected from their state government. So there's a, and with some little things, but but not much. It's more of a preserve of liberties that are there rather than an, an opportunity to create new rights. And she, Sandra Day O'Connor, for instance, cites that as something that's really a good point about a revolution. But you see this time and time again, that kind of delineation. And uh, just on the point of the Robespierre thing, so the Jacobin name isn't that much better. <laughs> so if we do want to get to the group, you'll see both in British politics and in American politics. Yeah, if somebody's bad and you want to call somebody like a mob leader Jacobin, this is something that gets hurled at William Jennings Bryan when he tries a more populist campaign, tries to introduce silver money in um, 1896, and really does have a very kind of rights of man message, except that, you know, when you look at when he's called a Robespierre or when he's called a Jacobin, the way William Jennings Bryan defends himself is like, how dare, like, it's not like, that's right, I I am just like those French revolutionaries. Oh no, even he must make that same delineation that it really appears almost all Americans, except for a very small, maybe like the Communist Party in the U.S. or something, would ever make. This delineation that no, 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 even when I'm talking in a very revolutionary language for economics. I'm going to, you know, rip out your, there's going to be grass growing in your cities and we're going to like, you know, turn the money supply upside down. I'm still an Andrew Jackson, not a Robespierre. So you see that again and again throughout American politics. Now, I didn't really answer the question. So real quick, the biggest way that I see the revolution affecting things is our neutrality doctrine. So the first thing, we didn't necessarily have that in the very beginning. And when there's war between our friends in France and Britain, our former country, Washington decides on neutrality. It's not popular with everybody. It's particularly not popular with the French government and the French representative here, Charles Gannett. And um, there's trouble over this, but that is the policy decided on by everybody in the Washington government with a little reluctance from Thomas Jefferson, who would like to see us maybe be neutral, but not announce it. And um, it, it really creates in America early on this kind of like, don't entangle yourself in foreign, um, foreign problems. 
you, you have to remember, we had a lot of things, but we didn't necessarily have a strong navy. Had a strong merchant, you know, situation and ships. And we had Philadelphia, our capital. It was not, while, while protected somewhat at the mouth, it was not that hard to picture a fleet coming up the Delaware and taking our capital. You know, we lived with that every day, almost a Cold War-like mentality in these times. And so, so, so while we didn't necessarily fear the, um, like, okay, we're going to have Robespierre here in America, that's more rhetoric. I think the relationship with France changed. I think certain figures wanted to perhaps void um, without officially getting rid of the treaty, but void some of the obligations. We certainly didn't want to consider ourselves an ally in France in the way of, we'll support you no matter what. So when the French ambassador to the United States that's sent by the first revolutionary government to send an, an ambassador, he does a number of things that is quite annoying to the Washington administration, one of which he he appears in Charleston Harbor. He says that he was blown there by the winds, that he couldn't get to Philadelphia because of the wind. Well, history will never know. It's certainly possible, but you know, there's this huge crowd waiting for him. They are more of the people who might be critical of Washington's government. He has instructions to do a couple of things that are alien to the Washington government, which would be a more federalist government. One of that is that he wants to support privateering on British ships. So to have French vessels, say, in Charleston, in Norfolk, in Providence, Rhode Island, and in Philadelphia, being outfitted, and then to use that as a base because they can't, it's easier than going all the way from France and attacking British shipping. This is not something that the Washington administration's interested in. Interestingly enough, not even some of the friends of France, like Madison and Jefferson here, who are ostensibly friendly with France, want this. This is going to cause a war with Britain if we start harboring. But the way the French are looking at it, and Ganet is looking at it, is, hey, you have this treaty with us from 1778. You're supposed to be our ally. So in addition to that, they wanted to start setting up pro-French governments in some of the Western states and to try to get the citizens in Louisiana and Florida and start to uh, go on raids against the British. Um, there was some agitation that he had instructions to cause some agitations in Kentucky. Kentucky was the overmountain group and they weren't exactly in line with the Washington government of Philadelphia, so maybe there could be a play there. Um, none of that really came to fruition, but those were things he was trying to do. He also has meetings with, with Washington where they, in the Washington administration, do not feel that Ganey showed the, um, the courtesy to an American president. And isn't, frankly, insulting, telling him what to do. And um, this was uh, how some in the government, particularly Federalist Party, perceived the way uh, France might be. So you had the Washington Party, if you will, the Federalists. Washington never considered himself a party. but And then the Anti, which was the Republicans. And that's mostly associated with Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, but a lot of other folks who feel like we should be more of a republic. And the Federalists were more like this constitutional, these checks and balances and a banking system and money 
these are the important things. Let's build our country. And, and of course, we're going to be a democracy, but somewhat second, whereas the, the, the Republicans wanted to put that first. There are a number, there's 38 Democratic Republican clubs throughout the United States, and they are going at their meetings, have the French flag flying. And they are strong supporters of the alliance between France and the United States. I do believe still that some of these people are still going to be horrified by some of the more terroristic events. But there is a lot of support for France. And why aren't we supporting the guys that helped us in the revolution instead of dallying with the, the English? You come to the 1794 Jay Treaty, and that's a big moment where the breakoff between Americans and the Washington administration and France happens. And that is when we sign a treaty with Britain. And it's very unpopular within the, among the people of the United States. But the government of the United States realizes this is the only way we're going to get the British out of the western of the United States to allow Western expansion. So we have to sign it, even though it's insulting in some way, because the British never commit to stop doing some of the bad things on the high seas that we had a problem with them doing, which was in, you know, impressment of our sailors. They would just take sail hicks. Sometimes they wouldn't even do it on the high seas. They'd go to bars in Philadelphia. The British would pick up drunk sailors and now you're in the British Navy, go. And we were really not, that's what's going to lead up to the 1812 war because we weren't effective in stopping that. So the French have a couple points, one of which is like, you know, a little bit of concern trolling, like, hey, I'm your friend. I just want to, you got, you, you wrote a really bad treaty with the with the British. Oh, and by the way, I saw it, and as a diplomat, I'm going to publish it so your whole country can see it. And when the country did, it wasn't enormously popular. Jay is burnt in effigy. So you do start to get at least American-style riots. They're never going to reach the level of San Calais in the streets, but they're, they're definitely, um, there are some of that. It's a very difficult time. The treaty does eventually pass after a, an awful fight, and uh, the French government is not happy about that. That's really a break to where it's okay. We, you essentially are saying we're not an ally anymore, and and that's where um, they'll actually try to get involved in the 1796 presidential election. So after Washington gives his farewell speech and leaves the stage, the French minister at that time, a day, is going to. Um, issue a proclamation that Americans should vote for Thomas Jefferson, essentially. It, it's really only reaching Philadelphia, but Pennsylvania is such an important state in that 1796 election. There had just been a local election where Federalists won after the French minister issues his letter, which essentially says you are in danger here of us attacking your shipping, treating your ships badly, not trading with you, not giving you any rights in France, you know, consular rights in France, all of this stuff, when you could have it very well with us if you just select this Thomas Jefferson fellow. Today, if it, I guess it does happen. We talk about interference in American elections, but it happens when we have our first open election after Washington, because everyone knew Washington was going to run and then run for re-election. No one contested him. After the open election between Jefferson and Adams, the French do try to get involved. It's not a very well-known story. Fortunately, while it does turn the state of Pennsylvania, they vote for Thomas Jefferson. They had just voted for Federalists like a month earlier. 
So everyone's attributing this to merchants, some Quakers in Philadelphia, a little bit afraid of starting a war with France. Um, so there are a few electors in North Carolina and other places that vote for Adams that make it a very close um, election that John Adams wins in any case, despite that letter. But he does get involved. He does other things. He'll tell people in Philadelphia they have to wear cockades that in their hats that show the French colors. And if they don't, they will not receive respect from, from France. So these are the kind of little battles that we have right at the outset. And again, we're having more problems with the directory at times than the Jacobin government. Yeah, it's fascinating. I didn't realize that the that the you know, the French ambassador, if you like, was was so directly trying to put his thumb on the scales in that election. But I suppose as you as you mentioned earlier, you know the the French Revolution either directly or indirectly continues to pop up not only in the 1700s but in the late 1800s as well. I for me, one of the things that you know, obviously, I've got a bit of a heads up about some of the research that you've been doing, and one of the things that I was really fascinated was just how, I suppose, long the shadow was of the French Revolution on the American political psyche, including in elections in the 20th century. Do you want to maybe talk about that a little bit? Because I was I was really taken aback, I suppose, by just how prominent some of the nightmares of the French Revolution, if you like, from the perspective of, of Americans across the Atlantic, continued to play a role even in the 20th century. Even in the 20th century, I mean... It's not like people right now, like Biden, Trump is going to be about the French Revolution or something. But I'm surprised you do occasionally get a reference and you see sometimes on social media, somebody using a term like Jacobin or, um, you know, just citing the guillotine or something as, a, as, again, a cautionary tale of what could happen if we let, you know, absolute democracy prevail and things like that. But it casts a long shadow over American politics. Um, now... You might hear people say mob rule, but what's the image in your head when you're thinking mob rule? Might be the Bolsheviks, might be 1917 Russia. Well, guess what they used in 1917 in America to describe the events there that they had no description for as of yet? How do you describe what the Bolsheviks are doing and why it might be wrong? They were using in newspapers, your more conservative newspapers, the example of the French Revolution. So now someone might say a Bolshevik. But if you're going back to the 20th century and before that really cemented, um, the French Revolution was the cautionary tale of choice. You can go all the way back to the 1912 election. There's this new technology that comes out and it's too early for radio, but you can hear the voices of the candidates in your home. And that's through a phonograph, a record. And there are three candidates in 1912, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and William Howard Taft. And if you had a Victrola talking machine in your in your house, you could play these records and you could be sent a speech from the candidate that you wanted or several of them. And this is a great way, rather than sending Theodore Roosevelt to every town, which wouldn't have been possible, he can do it through this phonograph. And so they do several of these speeches. Um, and at the time, the reason the French Revolution comes up in 1912 is that Theodore Roosevelt had bolted his Republican Party. So he now saw no need to be conservative at all, to placate conservatives. He had taken the progressive wing of the Republican Party with him and left the incumbent president, William Howard Taft, to run as a Republican. 
So he's running as a bull moose progressive. Now, here's some of the radical things that he's for. A living wage, a ban on seven-day working weeks, and no night labor for women and children. Now, this isn't really radical stuff. These are some things that states tried to do, but in many cases, and you know, even his opponent in that election, Taft, the president, might have agreed with some of that stuff. But here's the problem. When states uh, would try to enact bills or even some intrepid congressmen would try to pass legislation, the Supreme Court of the United States or other federal courts were knocking these rules down. So he does something else. Theodore Roosevelt goes after the courts of the United States. And he says Supreme Court decisions should be reviewable by popular referendum. Now, Taft, his opponent in that election, he's a jurist and he responds. And of course, he says a Roosevelt victory would institute a reign of terror similar to that following the the French Revolution. He uses the term reign of terror. So in his phonograph speech, Roosevelt now has to be slightly defensive. We do have a snippet of it. Perhaps we could play that. I have a little MP3 here. Here, If we do play it, um, a note to listeners that you're hearing that and you're like, is that what Theodore Roosevelt sounds like? Well, sort of. We think that it's a little bit sped up, but we're not sure. How do we know what Theodore Roosevelt really sounded like? But it is something of what he sounded like. You might picture, see Theodore Roosevelt, the bull moose, right? And think he's got this really deep macho voice. He probably didn't. He had a little like kind of a New Yorker, maybe a little Michael Bloomberg-y, like kind of New Yorker type, upper class. Um, very firm, but a little bit middle Atlantic, like, I will not do this, you know, that kind of thing. So you're going to hear that there. The great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated with. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. Had pre-revolutionary France listened to men like Turgot and backed them up, all would have gone well. But the beneficiaries of privilege, the forward reactionaries, the short-sighted ultra-conservatives turned down Turgot then found that instead of him they had obtained Robespierre. They gained 20 years' freedom from all restraint and reform at the cost of the whirlwind of the Red Terror, and in their turn the unbridled extremists of the terror induced a blind reaction. And so, with convulsion and oscillation from one extreme to another, with alternations of violent radicalism and violent bourbonism, the French people went through misery toward a shattered dome. May we profit by the experiences of our brother Republicans across the water and go forward steadily avoiding all wild extremes. And may our ultra-conservatives remember that the rule of the Bourbons brought on the revolution. And may our would-be revolutionaries remember that no Bourbon was ever such a dangerous enemy of the people and of freedom as the professed friend of both Robespierre. Okay, basically what he says is he favors moderates, this common theme, and the conservatives, the Bourbons, were too strict. They didn't give the people any rights. And the Jacobins were too radical. They gave the people too many rights, or what have you, went too far. And their answer was right in the middle, but they didn't take that path. And that's what Roosevelt says he's going to do. What's important about that whole all those politics is here's a phonograph going out to American voters. 
he's citing names like Robespierre and Turgot and Bourbons and things like that. And he doesn't have to tell people who they are because it's in their brains. They know. And these are common political references, even in 1912. Gosh, so many examples. We talked about William Jennings Bryan earlier. He was constantly getting called like a mob rule Robespierre, and he defended himself. Even Abraham Lincoln, when Southerners who were about to secede from the United States after his election, they used the term Robespierre to compare to him. They say, you know, Robespierre was ambitious. He'd say anything to get his way. So does Lincoln. This is in the Jonesboro, Tennessee Weekly Gazette in 1864 during this, the American Civil War and is a Southern attack on President Lincoln. So quite a, a common example uh, that is used. And then on the positive side, you know, you have like Calvin Coolidge was making some speeches as president in the 1920s. And he would talk about the greatness of Lafayette. He served the cause Calvin Coolidge said, of ordered liberty in America. Lafayette was unwilling to serve any other cause in France. He is galloping through the ages, but he refused to be a man on horseback. He knew that the welfare of his country lay in moderation. The people trusted him, but the extremists, whether Jacobin or royalists, they feared him. This is the story that Coolidge tells about Lafayette, and why Lafayette good, Robespierre bad. He doesn't mention Robespierre in that speech. You see, this is all this is all twentieth century. Yeah, it, it's absolutely fascinating that depending on what the you know the presenter wants to do with the memory of the French Revolution, the French Revolution is either complete, you know, all radical and all bad, and a warning as to what not to do, or alternatively as you just alluded to, the French Revolution is also held up by some American politicians as an example, particularly the earlier years of the French Revolution, as an example of, yes, we shouldn't be too radical and too extremist, but we still there's still a case for moderate reform and a moderate path forward, and we shouldn't be too reactionary, you know, in the case of that quote, you know, attacking the royalist perspective. So it, it, to me, it's fascinating, not only that you get this kind of legacy of the French Revolution that remains kind of a bit of a bit of a cloud over American politics, but that American politicians can kind of pick and choose what they want to reference and whether that's making the case either against change or for, for moderate change. And I suppose, you know, as you said before, before the Bolshevik Revolution and before Marxism really became this kind of boogeyman in American politics, the French Revolution played that role to a large extent. It would be interesting to, you know, there's a parallel universe somewhere where maybe the French Revolution still plays a far more prominent role as this kind of cautionary tale, as well as an inspirational tale to some in American politics. But I think nowadays, as you alluded to earlier, it's more the Russian revolution and what comes from that, Marxism, Leninism, communism, etc., that probably is is more, at least on the conservative side of the American spectrum, plays more of that role of this this cautionary tale. I certainly, you know, I don't listen to many speeches by Republican candidates in the in the current 
2024 primary, but I don't hear that many references to the French Revolution, but I still hear quite a few references that that are pretty closely linked to the Russian Revolution. Well, yes, uh, sorry, Robespierre, there was a Stalin. And Stalin in American politics has now replaced, particularly because we were allies. And during that time, there was a Democratic president. So from the 50s there forward, um, when uh, the more and more that was learned about Stalin and the reality, the more and more that he became the boogeyman, it's just easier. And of course, the Russians revolutionaries made it easy because what was their model, right? I mean, use the French an- anthem. They, they Lenin loved the French Revolution and saw it as the model to follow. So it wasn't hard for American papers to, at the time, 1917 when it's going on, and in 1919 when Woodrow Wilson and Americans actually send troops to try to intervene against Bolsheviks in, in their revolution, that the example of the French Revolution is the cautionary tale that derives that against some opposition in the United States, because Woodrow Wilson is another one who was not a fan of the radical part of the French Revolution, was a supporter of the ordered liberty concept, and Burke that we talked about earlier, you know, he, Woodrow Wilson as a professor, was very into that, and so you just see that, you see that line again and again, and the distinction that Coolidge made between Lafayette and, um, and the others, and it, in looking at the French Revolution, through that lens, many politicians in America have now seen what's great about ourselves. To what extent it's all true, were these stories that um, America tells itself about the French Revolution, you know, your podcast could probably answer more as to how true all of them are, but it's definitely true that that's the way that we've always seen ourselves and what's good about ourselves in contrast to the bad parts of the French Revolution. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for sharing that. I know my listeners um, will be thrilled to hear about not only the short-term impacts of the French Revolution on American politics, but in particular, how that has continued over the decades and indeed centuries. And yeah, I, I learned a lot. So thank you so much. Well, William, thanks for coming on and really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for being on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics as well. Thank you for listening to this special collaboration episode with Bruce Carlson of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. If you have any follow-up questions for either Bruce or myself, feel free to send them directly on social media, Patreon, the contact form on the website, or the dedicated questions channel on the Discord community. Episode 64, Leon, Royalist or Revolutionary, is already available for community members with early access. Speaking of the most awesome people in the world, come join the party. With exclusive bonus content, the Discord community, live video calls and a range of other perks, you can do your part to support the show and enjoy a ton of benefits in the process. Of course, a huge thank you to those who are already doing their part to keep grey history on the air. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.